Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Welcome, Regenerates, to this episode of the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing Mr. Andrew Baskin, who is a worker-owner with Lyft Economy and the host of the Next Economy Now podcast, uh, co-host, and some of his uh, fellow Lyft Economy member owners um, also host episodes, which it's a fantastic resource. They really dig into the emerging movement for socially just and regenerative business in a, in a beautiful way. And I really enjoyed this conversation with Andrew. We covered a variety of different topics, um, including um, some conversation about the uh, Black Lives Matter and social justice movement and how that intersects with business and um, some of the ways in which Andrew goes about helping uh, guide entrepreneurs to sort of root in their passion and create reciprocal relationships and sort of transcend the extract value paradigm of of business operations. So uh, yeah, really grateful for the conversation with Andrew. Looking forward to having him back on. I think we, we left an open door for a couple of threads. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome, Andrew. Really excited to have you on the on the show. Um, thanks for showing up. Absolutely. Uh, in so many ways. Great to be here. I'm going to just pop this into the live stream for, for the masses. All uh, right. Uh, <laughs> live stream in effect. Exactly. And then every time I live stream, it just starts playing. So we get this weird echo chamber. So um, watch for that. Yeah, so I'm really excited to talk with you, Andrew. Um, we don't get to, you know, hang out that much. We're on opposite sides of the the, the continent here. Um, but I've always, I mean, I've always super appreciated the times we have gotten to connect. I have, I, you know, I have a few concrete That's memories nice. with you of of really meaningful conversations for me and. Um, you know, I love the work that you and the Lyft folks, there was the loop there. <laughs> I, love the, I love the work that you and the other members of uh, Lyft Economy are, are always doing. And, you know, I, I think, you know, um, without beating around the bush too much, I'm also very keen to talk to members of my community who um, are people of color, who are, I'm especially interested in talking, honestly, in talking to black men at this moment. And yeah, I just feel like there's this, un, you know, there's, there's been this building, this building for so long. And right now we're at kind of a fever pitch of many different intersections. One of them being, you know, a lot of people standing up and saying, we don't want to take police brutality anymore. At, but I, I have the sense that that's a stand-in for a much bigger conversation, really, that's moving. And yeah, and I feel like your work, your vocation is, is right at, in the middle of all of this around, you know, a new form of economics, new form of, um, 
governance, new form of um, earth-centered relationships. And uh, yeah, man, I just want to talk. I want to get your perspective on it and, and swap some ideas and yeah, and just, you know, hopefully bring your voice out to, out to our audience. And, um, you know, as always, my podcast is really centered on kind of authentic long form conversation. So I, I don't, you know, it doesn't need to be like, like what I really love to do and what I want to do is, get, you know, get out into the creative edge where maybe there's thoughts that haven't been thought before, or, you know, maybe I love it when I'm like, oh man, I didn't even think about that. Or, you know, um, sometimes guests get into, into that place as well. So that's kind of the, the context, man. That's, that's where we're at. Just, you know, present moment, what the hell's, what the hell's up, what's alive and uh, what are we all going to do about it? <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's the question of the hour. <laughs> so uh, maybe it's just worthwhile, Andrew, to just give a, a brief, you know, Hey, this is who I am to the listeners out there. Um, sure. Just kind of start there and then we can, we can wander our way into uh, the, the juicy stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I give a little bit of a introduction to myself. Um, thank you. Appreciate everything that you just shared and uh, looking forward to diving into all of that with you. So hello everyone tuning in. Thanks for tuning in to Gregory's show. <laughs> Great show. Um, grateful to be on. And yeah, my name is Andrew Baskin and I'm a partner and worker owner at Lyft Economy. And Lyft is an impact consulting firm uh, whose mission is to create, model, and share a locally self-reliant economy that works for the benefit of all life. And uh, <clears throat> there's many things that we explore under that umbrella. Myself, my background is, um, I guess kind of I approached this work really just based on principles of, analogous principles you might say of, of harmony or balance or healing or um, love. Um, and uh, early in my journey that started off with audio engineering, music theory, literal harmony, <laughs> and um, have subsequently moved on to studying regenerative agriculture and food systems, <clears throat> and then applying those principles in the economic dimension and hopping around because we can't take a sort of myopic uh, approach you know, we need to take that systems approach. And I'm approaching all of that really from a, I mean, on, on, on the theme of some of the things you queued up from a liberatory, uh, from a liberatory place. Um, liberatory is maybe synonymous with all of those things that I mentioned a moment ago. Say, say more, uh, say more about liberatory and what you specific like how does that live for you and what um as a frame yeah yeah i mean there's how does that live for me and how does that live for each of us and um i guess i want to just qualify off the bat you know like this is andrew baskin's perspective on all of this and stuff you know i, I don't want anyone to necessarily fall in the trap of like this is a black man speaking on that you know or or however um um but uh um yeah, so, I mean, we live, we live in the trap, right? So many traps. Um, and 
in order to live in the context in which we live, we all have to be functionally miseducated to live within the context in which we live. And uh, so, you know, we live in a context where, um, you know, my ancestors, for example, uh, and I have many, uh, I mean, for many different cultures from African American, Native American, uh, European, um, in a Jewish household, et cetera. So there's kind of a lot of blending happening. Um, but particularly within the context of um, kind of a, a black indigenous people of color lens broadly, um, there's obviously, we know that there's been ongoing oppression and some myths and things like this that keep it in place. And uh, yeah, it's, it's difficult to kind of like dis concisely describe the scope of it, but essentially it's like, there's, there's that dimension of things. And then there's the fact, there's like the dimension of the liberation and getting power for black indigenous people of color. And there's also all of us within this scheme of, you know, imperial conquests, um, monopoly, capitalism, wealth consolidation, ultimately ways of being in extractive relationship versus the other end, you know, which is the coming together, which is the regenerative um, and, and liberatory. So, you know, there's layers to that, to that, you know, kind of liberatory lens. But yeah, I, I realize I'm maybe being a bit abstract, but specifically like livelihoods, particularly right livelihoods. Mm -hmm. Like it's not just having access to an income, but something that actually enables us to express our unique individual humanity. Um, this kind, you know, this country has never been a democracy. It's maybe been a political representative democracy, but we've never had economic democracy, and that's huge. Um, you know, the institutions that we're working with that if we look upstream, a leverage point that um, I've found helpful is, uh, well, I go into this process a lot called, I call it, you know, causation hunting or, um, you know, looking at dependency chains. And, you know, if, like with the farm, for example, if you go as far upstream in the system as possible, then like from, from like the, you know, the plate and then either, you know, people will throw it in the trash or put it in the compost, go upstream in that system. Sometimes that's a very long relationship, but ultimately it, it it's comes to the farmer, right? And the land and the growing and that thing. And so that's a hugely powerful place within the food system from the soil and the farmer on through that whole entire economy, which I would argue agriculture and food systems is the basis of, is the foundation of any economy. But similarly within the economic context, uh, there's, you know, the enterprise is sort of the ability, it's sort of like the farmer of the economic uh, landscape, leveraging the seed value proposition to, um, you know, within the soil, which is the business that surrounds it to create, uh, you know, 
capital or value that gets distributed throughout the system downstream. And so part of that liberatory lens is like looking at like with, you know, David and Goliath, you know, I have limited capacity and I have to like try and aim my stone well, <laughs> trying to look at leverage points as far upstream in the system as possible mm -hmm. in order to kind of trickle out is, is part of how I think about that. And maybe that brings in some of the like, effectiveness and strategy side of that but that's um so that up upstream like moving upstream in the watershed image as you were saying that um i i was i i had the image of that uh great sort of corny movie the upward spiral with that paul crafell produced you I'm ever seen familiar. you ever seen that no i'm not familiar oh uh, well it's in which case i apologize for a tangent but it's really interesting. At some point, I'll have to send it to you. It's it's like this self-produced, this this really sort of like soft-spoken, sweet Quaker guy did this self-produced video over the course of a year in which it's sort of like him talking about moving up the watershed in order to be effective. And, it, and it's all these images of like the rushing water eroding banks downstream. Mm -hmm. And then it's images of him seemingly N nowhere close you know he's like a mile away or whatever up the watershed with a hand trowel and he's got this little hand trowel and with a hand trowel he's going where the the rivulets start to concentrate and they start rushing mm -hmm. and he's just sort of like making these little trowel swales mm -hmm. and he starts at the top and he goes all the way down and by the time he gets down over the course of a year that uh cut in the bank that rushing torrent is no longer there it's been it's like a it's you know it's a trickle it's still pouring rain but it's this trickle and it's you know it's this watershed regeneration metaphor that you were just inviting us into and just sort of like understanding how to engage as individuals or communities with this sort of you know sometimes confusing superstructure of an economy where Maybe feels like we're getting put in the boxes or we're getting forced into situations or we're, you know, we're being oppressed or we're oppressing in ways that don't, you know, uh, that aren't connected with our necessarily agency. And, and, you know, what I was taking from your share there was just a reminder of, you know, each of us is actually capable. Maybe this is, this is kind of like my definition of free will in a way. Each of us is capable of, uh, of taking a moment to look around and then moving up in our metaphorical watershed and just like going up a little bit and you know whatever tool we have just start doing something and i, I don't know does that resonate with your you, you 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 use the word uh right livelihood does that kind of resonate and intersect with what you're calling out there and sort of have in mind yeah well i think the right livelihood side of things is that in the in the context that i'm using it um and maybe just to quickly affirm i like Yes, the analogy, the metaphor that you gave is is spot on, um, and uh, <clears throat> uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Can you right livelihood that? is what I was thanks, asking thanks, about. Thanks, yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah, so that's kind of part of the psychology. There's like traps on so many levels, right? Like ecological uh, or uh, economic traps, psychological traps, et cetera. And, and there's like 
a psychology that we can easily fall into. When you say like, trap, just so just to get sort of like some of our language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you say trap, are you referring to sort of like s social patterns, like maybe personal habits, uh, sort of the general superstructure of our society and economy that just sort of like pull us in in ways that maybe are dehumanizing or environmentally degenerative? Is that is that are those, is, am, I, am I getting what you're laying down there as far as like your mental model of what a trap is? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess when I'm thinking about a trap, I'm thinking about something that, that you know, keeps us stuck yeah. or that, that like, that, that may, you know, there, there's many, many, many kinds and types of traps, but, it, you know, it's something that it, uh, Yeah, you know, we get we get uh, stuck in a situation that is not beneficial. Yeah, um, and it's and it it like it can be, you know, just like you know, if you're going into entrepreneurship, there's maybe some like pitfalls and and traps and things like that to avoid. And part of the like psychology of I think living in, in the economic culture that we live in is uh, the, the relationship to work for many of us is like really just revenue generation, right? So, yeah. And, and it, if we kind of like <clears throat> dial back what I was mentioning earlier around like, uh, um, Oh, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to lose um, anyone by jumping around too much. Uh, don't worry about it. I mean, th th this is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, this is a conversation between the two of us that okay. other people get to listen to. And if, <laughs> if they're, if they're stoked on it, as we go deeper and deeper, that's sort of the art form, right? It's like, don't worry about, don't worry right. about it. Go where your mind wants to go. <laughs> Word. Um, well, for, for me, so much of all of this whole conversation of, you know, sustainability and regeneration and mm. all of these things, like distilling it down is like all of it all. And maybe some will take this as an oversimplification, but for me, it is. 100% about shifting from being an extractive relationship, mm. either parasitic or predatory, to being in mutually beneficial relationship. Or at the very least, you know, someone benefits and the other is neutral. Um, there's kind of like in symbiosis, right? There's like an economic symbiosis. Yeah. You know, our, we have the ecological behavior and we call that symbiosis. And those same principles apply in economic context. And that intersects with, you know, with ecology, right? And how we are extracting from the land. So it's not about, uh, you know, mining the soil, but it's about actually regenerating and, you know, working with those systems. Yeah. Uh, and so it's that bringing it back to that, it's about the relationship that's there. Um, and, and what is the nature of that relationship? 
And that kind of mentality also uh, comes into how we approach our work, mm -hmm. right? Or, or how we approach ourselves in our work versus kind of, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I, I want to like embellish this point too much, but you know, just feeling, feeling inspired, feeling pulled to mm. do work that both, you know, that mainly that you feel called to do regardless of whether you're good or not at it. Um, but you know, maybe mainly that you feel called to do and that's needed. It's funny um, that you say called, uh, you know, like, uh, the, the etymology of vocation, uh, that voca, voca is like, that's call it's invoke. It's the, that's the, you know, Latin for to like a calling literally. Um, so it's interesting that you're, you're going there. I'm curious Before to you sort of bring this to, I just wanted ahead. to say, say another little bit there just to yep. kind of tie it back is, is that like how I'm relating to that personally is, is, uh, I feel like an aspect of the liberation that the ancestors that have come before me maybe have not had that choice, have not had that choice to be able, they, they have had to prioritize decisions that created economic financial security for them and their family in order to survive. Uh, and, and there's a very close tie in with that and some of the, you know, um, yeah, oppression that's been going on for a long time. Um, so hopefully that so that's, it's sort of like, that. it's sort of like what you're honing in on there to see if I can, you know, like, um, anchor in my sense making here, the pivotal role of what I was sort of referring to as vocation or the, 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 the ability to the ableness to follow one's own calling is somehow fundamental to like, like in different people, in different ways, um, that's been taken from a lot of people historically and in the present moment. And, right. and in, in a real way, I think on the optimistic side, which is how you've been framing everything of like, it's like, this is what you want. It's sort of like the, like what you're serving, what you're trying to, is what I'm getting is like liberatory to you means freeing up people's ableness to follow their calling basically. Yeah. I think it can be fun to approach someone you know or a random stranger and ask the question, if money was no object, what would you do with your time Yeah. today? For the next five years, for the next 10 years, um, what would that be? And, you know, maybe link that with like a deathbed reflection of like looking back, how would you want to spend those days? And I think that um, probably the answer to that is not necessarily how most of us are living our lives. And that our is day -day, the trap yeah. in motion, right? We're, we're swimming in the water. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's such a powerful question. And, you know, so, so then, 
where my mind goes, you know, and we don't need to, we don't need to steer the conversation in this direction if you don't want to, but it's very up for me. It's very present for me. It is really around, you know, in general, maybe even, I don't even think this needs to be a race issue to be honest. I, I mean, I think it's important to be able to analyze it from, from very, a variety of different perspectives, including race, but probably doesn't even need to be. We could just sort of say, what's the responsibility of those who have been liberated or were born liberated or, or have enough space in whatever way we wanna talk about it to be following their calling? What's the responsibility of those people to people who are stuck, whether it's mentally stuck or whether it's oppressed in a variety of different ways, um, unconsciously or consciously by a system, what's the line of relationship and responsibility in, in this paradigm that you're expressing between? Totally, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, <clears throat> so when it comes to that, where um, there's two things that come to mind with that. The first is a, <clears throat> a saying that something that is, you know, something that, value that I was raised with, um, uh, lift, lift as we climb is, is, uh, is the saying. And the other part is decompartmentalizing and that, that, so in, in response to your question, the, like, part of the psychology that we have been in for so long is very compartmentalized. We're, we're able to separate out these different things and, and some of that compartmentalization is starting to break down. Uh, <clears throat> and that has implications for how we approach our work, that has implications for our relationships with those around us who may or may not be similarly situated and, you know, any number of intersectional ways. Um, but, <laughs> uh, you know, especially as this global pandemic is made very plain uh, how deeply interconnected we are, um, we have to sort of confront some of this compartmentalization that we've done, which includes compartmentalizing people into certain areas uh, that receive greater, you know, pollution and a variety of burdens or, you know, in cages or whatever. And um, in terms of the responsibility, accountability side of that, it's like, how can we center, you know, uh, historically marginalized groups, under-resourced groups in the work. How can we do that? There's a, there's kind of a whole philosophical theory of change that, that informs that type of approach. Um, who, who do you find inspiring in that, in that arena that's doing, just doing work that you find really, yeah invigorating inspiring alive sure yeah um so many folks that we've featured on the next economy now podcast yeah. um, um one of them is a guy by the name of dennis derrick 
who runs an organization called the Corbin Hill Food Project in New York. And they completely changed the game and the food system uh, in New York, particularly for people of color, but also building economic relationships between uh, many rural farmers, most of whom are not people of color, and uh, the boroughs of New York and being able to provide pretty bespoke delivery service to all of those communities hmm. where there was hitherto not access to a lot of these types of foods and culturally relevant foods and so on and so forth. Um, um, that's maybe more on the like culture and access and, and the food system side of things. Um, uh, Jessica Norwood uh, and the team with the Runway Project are working to help, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, Black and, you know, other POC entrepreneurs access the sort of, you know, quote unquote, friends and family startup capital mm -hmm. that enterprises who typically come from backgrounds with, uh, that, that fit a certain, uh, you know, image. Um, yeah, I, like pulling back from that, it's, it's like, I, speaking to you from the regenerative, you know, agriculture side of things, it's like, a lot of this is very, and this ties back to the decompartmentalizing, like the, the, in the, like we could, as a, as a, you know, regenerative agriculture practitioner and you're approaching working in a desert, like, uh, or, or, you know, a place that is perceivably resource scarce in some dimension that limits its capacity to fully express itself. Um, you know, what, there's resources there, there's huge assets there, there's huge potential there. And part of it is, is helping to, uh, you know, uh, not underestimate that land and to reveal its potential. Yeah. And, uh, and there's certain some like critical things that you can do, like, I might, you know, start with some type of hugel culture type operation in a desert, create a water battery, create something and, you know, continue to build out from there. Um, but the way that the folks kind of relate often to degraded land uh, is in like versus fertile soil, that same kind of phenomenon happens in the economic space where we just want to you know, gravitate towards the people with resources and services and product offerings and all that gravitate towards the people with resources <clears throat> and the people without resources are sometimes, you know, left out of that equation. Um, but how could you take that kind of same mentality that you would take as an ecological designer in a desert context with a ton of potential that's interconnected to all of the other land around it and do that in, you know, a socioeconomic type of way? Is that making sense? Totally. And what I love about that perspective is that it honors these, these dimensions of place and culture and, you know, non-monetary wealth. And, and, and it invites us to be creative and embrace the resources we do have and the resources that are available and to, to use those as the base for instead of just looking outside and like looking over 
at those other folks who, ha who, who we have our images of and they live in a castle and, you know, floor to ceiling glass and, you know, whatever it is, right? And, and their culture is a certain way and they listen to a certain type of music or whatever. If we look at ourselves, wherever we may be, um, I, and that's been always been something that I've marveled at because I oftentimes feel as though there's a generalized trend and, and you know, there's always exceptions to this, of course, but a generalized trend, in my opinion, that the further up the socioeconomic ladder one climbs, the more one trades real wealth and real connectedness as it's measured by relationship, reciprocity, cultural richness, all of these other things, there's like an inverse relationship oftentimes. It's not all the time. Um, and I think there's some cool exceptions to that rule, actually. But a lot of times, that's my experience. Even personally, like the times that I optimize to be making money, and this is basically kind of going back to something you said earlier, which is people's relationship to making money, or, or rather, we should just say people's relationship to work is making money instead of vocation, instead of asking, how do I serve? What's the creative exactly. thing exactly. that I can do with my community? What's actually here already? That same principle actually apply, like that's at the individual level and then at the enterprise level too, the way like your typical C corporation, the way that it's structured, the, it's, a, it's a money farm, essentially. It's to yep. make money versus like, we're also you know shifting that paradigm to, okay, what is the actual like calling of this, does this enterprise want to be that actually has meaning? Yeah. Uh, that's not, you know, extractive, that can build wealth in ways that are beneficial. If we become conscious of the choice that we're in relationship in ways that are parasitic or predatory or win-lose, we have, we can make the conscious choice to shift that to be in beneficial relationship if we're not aware of that choice, then we're in the trap. And then, right. you know, if, if we are aware of that choice, then we can be held accountable for the decisions that we make, you know? So I like to, I like to presence that. And, you know, if folks choose to be in relationship in that way and are not actively working to <laughs> cease being in relationship in that way, there's consequences to that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's actually. I'd love to get your, um, you know, I'd, I'd love to talk shop for a moment about sure. the process of a corporate body exploring its calling. What does that, you know? And and I imagine it also likely there there's some parallels into communities. You know, what does it look like for a group? <laughs> whether it's a corporate body or, you know, a co-op or, you know, a, a neighborhood to work, to explore calling together. And um, yeah, I'd love to hear you riff on that a little bit. Sure. Well, you know, I, I'm probably, I, I can definitely riff on it. Um, and there's, I, I know that there's people who have tons of really rich experience on, on some of this stuff from, you know, Diane Leaf Christensen's uh, book on, you know, Eco village organizing to things around organizing co-ops or or just you know pulling together you know a team in general but uh i think that there's different 
maybe it's, I want to, before I just kind of like launch into responding to that, I just want to clarify, can you maybe re or restate the question or, or reform? Yeah, there's like, something that you said that got me excited and, and, and specifically like just to sort of like, you know, share some of my context. I was excited because in, in Carol Sanford's work and some of the work that I've done in the past around regenerative business, there's this concept of essentially of corporate vocation mm -hmm. and sort of essence and similar it's sort of similar language where where you know people are trying to sort of unveil what the founding impulse was of a business like what's the meaning that this business is trying to bring to its customers not just like what value are you extracting from people but how do you uniquely make your customers in the business context, how do you uniquely serve your customers in a way that makes that's evolving them, that's making them more able, increasing their ableness to express their essence and follow their vocation in some way, whatever the service is that you're doing. And so I kind of got excited that there felt like there's an intersection there. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that that's very close to the work in, in some way that Lyft does with, um, yeah, you know, uh, convenings, whether it's convenings of stakeholders to ask, like, what do we want to do together or working with businesses to help mm -hmm. people get deeper alignment. And so I'm just curious, you know, what experience you have and um, yeah, just, just, just what's moving, what's alive right there from your perspective sure. as a practitioner at Lyft that feels really invigorating. That's, that was kind of where my mind was going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, and I think that is, is uh, you could probably tell I have, my mind is kind of, an, I'm an analogous thinker, but I think it's, it's kind of like extrapolating from, we could take that question to ourselves as individuals, as an, as an identity, right? And, and that makes grow and shift over time. Like sometimes we can be in the mentality of like, oh, I have to pick like what it's gonna be. And I, like, it's linear. Uh -huh. And uh, that's probably a, a, a painful path to walk, but um, yeah, ho holding space for balancing like some has said maybe setting some things in temporarily and you know, embracing that th it's something that's iterative and may shift over time. Um, I actually recently, it's this is kind of so Lyft uses this framework that was our um, you know business design framework is what we kind of the flow that we go through in our next economy MBA, um, there's uh, like a design layer, revenue layer, admin layer, within the design layer, there's uh, vision, culture, strategy, operations. And then what you're asking about is kind of within that scope of probably some mix of the vision and the culture, you know, the culture having implication, like there's a tight relationship between those spaces, but um, there's actually many, we, I, we could say like, you know, we let's create a vision for our enterprise. And I could say that, and it can mean a hundred different things in, mm -hmm. in many people's minds. So nuancing a little bit about what that is, it's like, um, and I just kind of started <laughs> doing this somewhat recently, but teasing it out. So there's vision as, you know, source of inspiration that conveys a sense of inspiration, passion, or purpose that carries the energy that pulls on us rather than, you know, pushing ourselves. Um, it's the one that helps to attract and retain people. And, um, yeah, there's, uh, you know, things that organically emerge from 
a real desire and a real longing. And those are the ones that catalyze um, the most other people. They're super compelling. And when you see someone with like a real emotion like that, that, that authenticity is, you know, what people want to move toward and be a part of. And that's kind of like vision is inspiration. And then there's vision as values, principles, identity, or way of being. There's vision as your overarching objective, which I think is getting into the space that we're talking about is like, is our overarching objective for monetary purpose or some other, you know, thing. And I think that that's just like emergent, you know, I think that that that's just a listening into the hearts of, you know, who is present for that conversation for that design process. Um, you know, vision is organizing principle or cornerstone. That's sort of like the primary reference point for the whole organization and that helps to constrain decision-making and inform enterprise design. So there's, um, I don't know if it's, um, yeah, maybe pulling one other part is like that, having some things around that that help to create a vision as a, as a navigational device, as a compass. Mm -hmm. um, is this at all remotely answering your question or am I kind of just talking around it? I can't tell. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there's some, I'm, I'm excited to just like get a, get a glimpse of how you're, how you all, you as an individual, but also as a representative of a community of practice are thinking about some of these things. And, you know, I sort of heard, as I was listening, I, you know, I heard you describe three dimensions of vision that, you know, I think Matt are, meaningful discernments around you know what bring what what drives will you know and and how does it show up in a being ex expressed in a being way culture and these sorts of things and how how does it show up functionally you know with how we design business objectives and you know these sorts of things and yeah i mean i think it's right. it's pretty coherent and um yeah if I could just add to a couple more things to that, just to kind of like tie it together. The, yeah. what we were talking about a moment ago is like, you know, it, it say like your typical C corporation with shareholders, with shareholder primacy, the function of the enterprise is essentially a money farm that is maximizes, uh, you know, wealth accumulation consolidation for those, uh, you know, quote unquote owners. Um, and so contrasting that with, you know, that like contrasting a corporation who's, that's part of the vision as well as looking at sort of the system behavior, you know, that like the, 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 the goal or the system, the way that it functions. Um, and that also connects intimately with teasing out another part of vision, which is like for, like any for-profit enterprise, there's the needs fulfillment side, but you know, there's many of us who are in the work working for systems transformation and systems change. And that's a wholly different, uh, you know, enterprise. And our part of our task is, is making those things complementary. but those are, those are sort of, you know, and sometimes there's overlap, right. But fulfilling needs that exist in, you know, whoever you're looking to serve, is part of what makes that 
reinforcing feedback loop happen where you're able to provide value and you receive financial reciprocity back in enough quantity that enables you to grow your capacity to deliver on that need uh, versus the, the greater and deeper need that you may be working to change conditions within the context in which you're nested in society, in a neighborhood, in a, you know, what have you. So just wanted to kind of tease that out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. So there's a, in some way, there's the need to be able to identify sort of these nested systems where there's like an individual, there's a business, there's a neighborhood, there's an ecoregion. Am I, do you, do you, would you say that each, at each of those levels, you know, there's some sort of vocation? Sure. You know, like, yeah. So it's like a neighborhood kind of like, like we can sort of, we can, we could invite ourselves to consider, you know, the vocation or, or purpose of a neighborhood. And we could invite ourselves to be while also holding our own, like what's mine and how does, how does that relate? You know, and, and a businesses as, as well. Is that kind of how your, your mental model is working, referring that back to just trying to, to trying to get this concept in how you're holding it around, um, you know, reciprocity and relationship. Um, and yeah. anchoring what does it look like to be considering you know either win-win or you know win neutral dynamics between people um yeah um i'm gonna share another analogy <laughs> yeah yeah great so, so i think some some of the ways in which i think about the economy is very informed by ecology and so thinking of you know organization sort of as economic organisms within yeah. a land within a landscape and that happens at multiple scales right we can go down to the ant making you know the little ant hill and and then you know the <clears throat> the larger uh you know predatory animals that are helping move herds across the landscape um there's there's different you know, scales and niches to engage all over the place. Um, but it's kind of being tuned into recognizing where there's a need to be filled. And that like, and, and people are doing, or excuse me, those, you know, like if I'm thinking about organisms, like there are organisms who are just in doing kind of needs fulfillment. They're, they're, they're meeting their own needs and, you know, maybe having some kind of exchange with, another organism in the process. And then there's also animals who are changing actively and intentionally changing the conditions around them to be uh, more beneficial to themselves and others. Um, as, mycelium, as, as elephant. Bill Wallison always said, everything gardens. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, and um, shoot, there's another thing that I was going to say. I'll maybe. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt you there. Um, I know where well, yeah. So, what what you were talking about there was just the the analogy of being able to hold an image of our economy and relate it to what we know about the living world. And um, what I love about that is, uh, to me, that is 
I, I mean, you've sort of been dancing around generally a, a topic that I would broadly refer to as uh, game theory, basically. Hmm. Um, from a mathematical perspective, it's called game theory. That's where you're like exploring, like, is this a zero sum game? Or is this, you know, uh, is this a different type of game that isn't zero sum at all? And um, looking out at, just to ground this for a second and get your take on it. So looking out at the natural world, I can see that a, a lion is behaving in a predatory way with a gazelle, right? But that because of the scale that that takes place and the ecological context that they're in, that predatory behavior is a, a force for balance and it's a force for regeneration and it's, a, it's, it's, uh, it's different. So there's like, at a, at a micro scale, there's kind of a zero sum game between that lion and that gazelle. Like one of them's gonna win, like the gazelle's gonna get away and the lion's gonna be hungry or, or the lion's gonna it eat the might gazelle. Be, it, might, it might be or it might not be though. Yeah, like I think that, it, that like that and that like I love that question like that and anyone who's asking that question is they're thinking about it right but like most for 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 most of us it's like it's not even really at that point like well, tell me tell me tell me the scenario in which the lot just like the the relationship yeah, yeah. between the lion and the gazelle in which you're like well is that actually zero sum I want to hear that that's 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 where that's sure. Truth. Right. Well, you know, I think that that, that requires some, um, like if I'm sitting right there, right. And, and I see the flesh being ripped from this gazelle and it's like, I can, you know, potentially empathize with the gazelle, you know, or if I see this, you know, lion feeding its family and all of that, I can empathize with the lion. Um, and like, what's the space for me empathizing with both and, mm -hmm um you know there's the they're providing many ecological functions you know if if one has insight into has been patient enough to observe long enough or to take the time to like learn about some of those systems that um the you know those those predator animals are uh helping to uh keep a, uh, a certain level of balance and not necessarily from a place of intentionality but functionally keeping a, a um and i who knows maybe they, they are being intentional i i don't want to necessarily denigrate the potential intelligence of a hypothetical lion but uh <laughs> um you know moving them across the uh, a, a plane or the, the feeding place enables you know the grasses to regenerate the soil to regenerate and so on and so forth um it helps to keep the population in check so that you know again the plant life is not the carrying capacity of the space that it's that the whole scenario exists within is not overly taxed um you know the there's there's the there's the like individual interaction level and then there's the fact that it's nested within this larger system um well, so yeah, I mean, can, exactly. It can, get, it can get nuanced and complicated, like, very quickly, but yeah. But that's, I mean, exactly. I mean, that's sort of, that's what's so fascinating to me is what, you know, like, in what moments are 
is is competition between an individual or a company for instance a create like non-linear scaling regeneration because the because the relationship between that you know like depending exactly as you said like depending on your subjective view like are you are you inside the gazelle running or are you the lion or are you zooming out and watching what takes place or are you looking at the nutrient cycle and the herd movement and the seasons and the larger ecosystem balance and the the un, the, the fact i think it's a fact this is kind of what what's exciting to me i think it's a fact that at different scales these relationships have to follow different rules and that I think one of the ways to talk about what's happened in our society and, and, and sort of like an attempt to make some meaning that doesn't personalize the oppressive structures and allows people to step back and see themselves in it and see other people in it and then have some agency around what we actually want to do together is something like the understanding that i don't know how uh you know just to put it in a simple way that it's like mistaken readings of darwinism created this weird social darwinism which basically used the analogy of a lion and a gazelle at the highest possible social scale <laughs> so that so that the whole system itself was competing in essence, the way a predator does, instead of at the highest scale, looking at the ecosystem and then understanding that there are places for predator prey relationships, if you're using that analogy, but you don't scale that single relationship out to the like macrocosm of the world, that that's kind of like crazy and it cre creates all sorts of crazy things. Yeah. Yeah. There's also different, you know, levels of system balance, right? I think we might generally look at like, you know, the, like a tropical rainforest as one of the most productive expressions of like living life in an ecology. Um, but there's also, uh, you know, conditions where that is not necessarily able to express uh, as, as fully. Um, mm -hmm. And that's maybe a little bit of a subjective, intuitive kind of space. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think we, you know, if we're used to, sometimes I get carried away with these analogies. <laughs> <laughs> I better stop. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, we can't so, get used to swimming in the water that we're in. Yeah, right. Well, that's the big challenge right now, I think. And I mean, to sort of like reground this conversation in the present moment, the, the, the very uncomfortable present moment, or maybe like super, I don't know, I, I gotta be honest, I sort of oscillate between, man, I'm kind of all over the place with how I feel about what's going on right now on multiple levels. Global weirding feels like it's at a, an all time peak and I think it's gonna keep getting weirder before it like starts subsiding. That's my sense of things. I think you could have a global weirding tea with your face on it. <laughs> That's an interesting meme. 
<laughs> Maybe I should call this the Global Weirding Podcast. <laughs> I think so. I think it would be good marketing. <laughs> it's better. It's better marketing for sure than the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. Who wants to say that? <laughs> no, okay, it's done. I'm it's changing name, it to the Global Weirding name. Podcast. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, peak global weirding. I mean, it's been funny. I mean, are you comfortable shifting gears a little bit? Yeah, man. Let's see, come out of the clouds. So yeah, see if we can't land. Well, I think it's been good to sort of like do this, you know, shared meeting making back and forth and let's see what we can't, you know, if, if we can make those clouds rain and, uh, you know, <laughs> come down to earth. Um, I'm finding myself all over the place emotionally with what's happening with the Black Lives Matter movement right now. I got to be honest. I'm like, all, I'm all over the place. Sometimes I'm like almost elated and I'm like, finally, seems like there's a critical mass of people who are like, not going to take this shit anymore. And it seems like there's some amount of coherence here that actually could be transformative. And then other times I'm like uh, confused, frustrated, uh, scared, um, angry, yeah. you know, and, and I imagine that kind of like everybody's going through a similar kaleidoscope of emotions right now. I, I doubt I'm the only one. Um, and my guess is everybody's got their different triggers. You know, like the things that make me angry are, are maybe not the same things that make you angry, or maybe they are, but, but you know, just there's going to be differences. And um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm really sitting with how, well, I mean, just to get to the point here. So I, I, I've been sitting with this question um, about how I, engage the most most productively with this conversation it when my read on it is probably the most productive thing that many people's opinion and it, and it may be absolutely right that the most productive thing i can do is shut up and listen <laughs> that that's like and, and just like holding that and like wondering, like, is that true? Is it always true? How do I calibrate my like receptors to modulate my interactions so that I'm um, creating the right amount of space to listen and learn while also not like tuning out? Because the risk there is to just sort of like kind of like drift off and become alienated from it and be like, well, this is other people's stuff because I don't really have a voice here. And, and somehow that I, I, I'm, I'm projecting like crazy here, but I sort of feel like my, my struggle, I have a sense that that struggle of like, how do I productively participate? How do I build relationships here that are meaningful? We may be on different, people may be on different sides of the coin on this, but that is somehow the crux of the question that we're struggling with as a society somehow. Is like, how do we actually build healthy relationships where, you know, where we're listening or acting appropriately and not just the way that we're habituated to do it, not just the way we've so, always done it. So can I, I'll hit the pause. So replace in that last sentence that you should replace the word, word healthy relationships with soil and let's take it to the ecological. So like, 
it's like there's like say there's a if if I replace the you know word soil in that sentence, it's kind of like the mindset of a farmer shifting from wanting to cultivate those types of relationships in the soil and in the farm versus the way that it's kind of conventionally done. And then you know from the permaculture kind of perspective, it's like the long protracted observation um, has 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 its value when we're uh, operating in you know a complex dimension where there's great uncertainty and unpredictability um, and then we can kind of shift things and engage from from that place but you know I, I think that it I don't think that there's necessary I'm sure you know the, the answer to your question is it's very context specific very yeah. context dependent and it, like I hear in your question like how, how what's my how like maybe inquiring to some degree or like sharing your your uh, inquiry into uh you know like how to gauge you know what to do when um i don't know if i necessarily have a, a clean and clear response to that um but i i think that erring on the side of um thought like actively kind of listening and or asking questions can be super helpful um but again you know it's not like like you do uh, as everyone does has a ton to you know contribute um so i don't think that it's about you know stifling that necessarily but um uh, yeah it's funny the you know just to speak more directly to this the i mean there's multiple levels first thank you for grounding back in the ecological metaphor and you know it's it's really powerful how that contextualization i just resonate with that i mean i think if we're all able to think about the soil that we're trying to cultivate together, grow together, it's such a transformative frame. You know, our society is soil and, you know, what emerges out of that, the, the fruits of our society can only grow from healthy soil. And that reframe is just super powerful. And I, I think it's a good North star and it's a, it's a good, it's just, it's really powerful for me. And, and that's because I share a, common sort of like background and language with you so it sort of just like shifted me right right there so i really appreciate that yeah absolutely um you know see seeing if we can like use that frame on some specific you know maybe controversial or edgy things you know I, i've been finding that that recently i've been really turned off by the like academic, I've been really turned off by cancel culture. Super turned off by it. I'm like- What culture? Sorry. Cancel culture, the cancel, cancel culture. Yeah, the, the like deplatforming or um, like, like what I perceive, and, and to me it feels like really interconnected somewhere at the very root of the, like the new left and 
Black Black Lives Matter is a part of this, but there's also there's a it's multi-dimensional. It's a big movement. There's it, there's no single. It's there's a lot of humans involved. It's complex. I don't want to get sucked really, into. I'm still not but, really clear on what what you're meaning by cancel culture. Well, this sort of like help me to understand cancel culture, and and, and it may be my perception is it's very active and very it's it's very much. It's very active in San Francisco and New York. It's very, um, there were several instances in which, you know, sort of like uh, in quotes, like right wing thinkers or whatever got protested and then like kicked out of Berkeley, for instance, that happened like several times. Uh, and there's just sort of like this whole thing, like if you say something or you're a particular person, like you can't talk and there's all this stuff happening in social media and people are, whatever it is, like in quotes, doxing people. Anyway, there's this whole like, in, it feels like an information war and it feels like, it's like no holds barred and there's this whole, it, it feels like dampening effect on good discourse. And I'm just trying to orient myself because that to me feels like there's this toxic, there's something super toxic there, which, and which maybe I'm like, I'm just trying to like calibrate my, I'm trying to calibrate my, you know, the, cause we all live in our echo chambers. We, we, you know, listen to this podcast or you read that person. I try to, like, you just to, like, just, I'll shut up in just a second. I, I, I've been doing my best, which is crazy making, but maybe useful to do things like, listen to uh i listen to some really amazing far left podcasts and i listen to some like really crazy right podcasts and i like every once in a while i listen to msnbc and every once in a while i listen to T tucker carlson on fox and i like i try to do this and it creates a lot of cognitive dissonance kind of makes me crazy but i do my best to like listen to these like this, this wide variety of different things and the thing that i notice on the right wing of the spectrum, which is sort of like reactive, maybe verging towards ethno-nationalist, kind of scary and weird. But the thing that I resonate with, which they're like banging, is like pointing out these examples of the cancel culture that the left has going on. Then there's all these things on the left that I resonate with. But I see in the discourse, I hear, even on the podcast I listen to, it's like the it's like the air they breathe and the water they swim in, but they are living in the cancel culture. It's like an accurate call out that's taking place, I think. And I've been really just sitting with that and struggling. And I'm, you know, in every conversation I've had in the last month or so on this podcast, I've tried to get people's take on this subject. So I'm just curious what your, you know, what your thoughts are. And maybe I haven't done a good enough job of like rooting it in an experience that you you even like, you know, have an opinion about. I don't know. I, I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm reaching, I'm trying to, what, what is cancel culture? Like cancel culture is sort of like the idea yeah. that in order to create a safe space for everyone to, to communicate, there are certain things that you can never say. And if somebody says it, they have to be like removed. That's, that's the epitome. It's around the safe space concept. And there are like, there's good points to that, but the way it shows up is like, it's like censorship essentially is, is the way it shows up. And, and I think it's contextual. I mean, I think there's certain circumstances where you, you know, you want to like create the boundaries and there's other circumstances you don't. And 
mostly I think there's a productive conversation to have there, but I don't feel like that's what's happening. I feel like there's like a universalization of safe spaceness that is at least feared or experienced. That is my primary hangup as like a, you know, sometimes radical, sometimes middle of the road, you know, like, like sometimes progressive, sometimes, you know, liberal, like white dude. That's my main hang up right now, politically, is the safe space conversation. It's like cancel culture, censorship, freedom of speech, and how I perceive that playing out. That's got me feeling very, yeah. Anyway, I don't know if that's landing still. And if it's not, we can just totally change subject. Uh, you know, I don't need to keep, it's not, it's not really about me. I mean, it's well, about me yeah, so far as I'm trying to, I'm trying I'll to get try. something from you, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll, tr I'll try to meet you. Can you hit me with a, with a question and I'll try and, you know, share. Cause I'm not, you know, I'm not in the, in the space that, like you said, you know, you've been taking in all, all this media and stuff. So I'm not really in your head with the question that you're holding around it, but. Um, I, like, I mean, I could share what's coming up for me, but I'm just curious to well, kind of- Well, first share what's coming up and then let's calibrate and I'll see if I can ask a more concrete question. Well, what, what's coming up for me is, like, I think to just put it plainly or just to like say it kind of candidly or frankly is like, yeah. I don't want to overcomplicate and obfuscate the root of the issues uh, and focus on kind of the symptoms. I think it goes again to that trowel kind of thing. There's uh, <clears throat> the, you, that, that trowel analogy and the upriver thing that you talked about earlier. Um, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, plurality of, 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 of confusion and chaos and malignment and, uh, you know, dissonance can occur downstream from um, some inharmonious condition that something exists within. And so I like to, I could like get in the fray of looking at the sort of level of interactions um, right now. And I have to look at the system in, uh, like a larger span of time and, and see, um, you know, like the root issue that a lot of those things are s surfacing. Um, yeah. And it like, and the, the, there's a secondary issue that's on top of that, that like a more cynical mind frame might refer to as like champagne problems but that's like, there's a secondary problem, which is like, there's then because of the, the, the backlash or response to some type of unjust condition, there is um, either like justified, you know, uh, action or, you know, collateral damage or what have you in the mix of that. But it's like similar to like, our immune response to COVID, right? Like nobody dies from the virus itself. Totally, die. we die by the overreaction to the virus. Of our, of our immune response, right? But, yeah. the, the, but the issue is not 
the the root issue there is not our is not the overreaction of our immune response. It's the fact that we've been invaded by a virus that's producing this response. You know what I mean? So so even within ourselves, with our integral body within ourselves, like we can get in a in a in a twist. Um, but you know, if we you know remove the virus and or have the ability to metabolize the virus through you know through our immune system um then we're we we keep our focus on uh well-being and 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 like the you know the healing the regeneration the the harmonizing and that could be you know in the economic dimension wealth distribution or uh you know well and like i say the wealth i mean i'm not talking about just money like land or wealth redistribution i'm talking about in the social dimension you know these things happen at many levels like personal structural systemic um but like rather than getting into the the fray and, and the nuance of like this I, I realize that that there I'm sure that there's a, va a valuable context to analyze some of these things and also like part where my mind gravitates towards is like yeah but the the water that we're swimming in is all still kind of fucked right like it, it it's it, we're all breathing in this kind of like polluted context and you know some of us are responding in different ways to it some like the polluted context is really working for some folks, even though on like a human or spiritual level, it's probably really not. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah, that's what's, that's what's kind of coming up for me in response. I don't like, no, it's super useful. And I think, you yeah. know, the, 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 to take it another spiral, I would just say, I mean, I think it, it helps me clarify, you know, what I'm referring to here is, I guess in, in bringing it back up to the level where we've created some shared reality, there's a, a theory of change, like a social transformation. You know, we could all say, yeah, we need to transform and regenerate our society, our economy, ourselves, our neighborhoods. We do. Okay. Then there's sort of like a, a how or a method conversation in which I, I guess I'm pointing out that some of the some of the ways that I perceive the methods that are being employed, I perceive as potentially like deeply counterproductive or, you know, like, uh, and in specific, I'm talking about some speech issues, you know, like, and safety and, uh, sa you know, safety versus freedom. And, and it's a complex issue. And there's like all sorts of contexts there. And, um, Mostly what I'm hungry for, which I don't think is happening in the discourse, is a nuanced conversation about the role of speech in societal transformation and when we create what sorts of space and rules between people. Because sometimes yeah. you want to be really limited and sometimes you want other spaces that are just like, you know, say whatever the hell you want, you know, like... You, and people may not go there because it might be super toxic and weird and you just might not go there. Um, and anyway, so I, I, am I, I hearing, so it sounds like the, I'm, I'm curious, like what is the, I, I think like the, the pain point for you that, that 
where the question is arising from. Yeah. I have a story. I have a set of stories, you know, and, and it, they're, they're like the, the vestiges in my long unorthodox unlearning and learning journey as a human. I would say I am, I started out somehow like the, the cultural context I started in was probably, you know, pretty rational, empiricist, you know, liberal democracy, middle class, scientific, you know, sort of like enlightenment thinking, you know? And so therefore there are pillars to that perspective around what makes, like how we fix society, or there's like certain items of faith around how we progress as a civilization. And one of those pillars uh, that I've, you know, examined and sloughed off and taken back in again and, and still is somehow a part of the fabric of my worldview, I guess, centers around, you know, freedom of speech, like speech and discourse and dialogue as a fundamental, you know, as a, as a, not just a right, but it's sort of like, it's one of the ways that we, as a culture, we evolve our culture to be more coherent with reality. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. It's like, to me, in my brain. And there's ways in which I see the, the you know, like, the, the, the new generation that's leading the, uh, I don't even know how to talk about this, but I, I perceive it str strongly in the Black Lives Matter. Frankly, I perceive it strongly in the community around lift economy and other places is around um, a, a very different perspective. I perceive it as a different perspective around speech that like, in moments I react to as almost Maoist and like almost like the cultural rev revolution in China where they basically dragged people who didn't tow the party line out in the streets and they like got rid of them basically. And it's like, if you don't say things in a certain way, there's like an allergic reaction amongst a particular community. And I get really scared about it because the history of, for instance, Maoism is really scary. It's like, it's scary, you know. Um, that's, you know, just to like unveil it. That's a little bit more of the story. And I'm, you know, and I'm trying to parse that because I also want to be an, I, I like resonate with and I want to be an ally with many of the, the other threads of this revolution. But there's this like central one, which feels, you know, uh, like the means, the means, and the ends could have a very perverse dynamic, I guess, in the culture that we're trying to create. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, I think to, to, to take it to Mao level might be, uh, yeah, it, it could be too much, it, and it likely is. It's likely sort of hysterical, but it's the his, it's the hysterical-ness that I'm re is. responding to, kind of. It's like, yeah, that's I like mean, the fever pitch of like, ah, and it's like, right. ah, you know. 
Right. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like the, like what is, and maybe just to, to clarify a little bit more so that I'm understanding, like what is the, the need that, that feels like, you know, that there's a concern. Yeah, the, the concern is just that we won't get there, that these things I also deeply care about won't yeah. come to be if we continue to be overly politically correct and we enforce political correctness and we don't let people talk and we like let the hysteria of that guide the tone, the tenor, the quality, who can speak and when, uh, that we're actually going to just like go into a cul-de-sac that'll either be just a dead end or, or be terrifying. That's my fear, kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, I mean, I think there's maybe, uh, <clears throat> a whole space to, you know, some of the things that I'm hearing from what you're saying that's like, um, that right like there's there's both a need for accountability and there's also an and an action following from accountability and also a need for there to be uh candid communication and so maybe there's like a an insidious part there that where things kind of move from out of the light into a place where they can't necessarily be addressed um like and they can kind of like lurk and fester in the shadow um in 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 that scope it's like it it does seem really helpful to be able to have conflict surface so that we can have be in generative relationship with it mm -hmm. and move through it uh and also, you know, potentially sometimes, again, I think it's super probably context dependent. Um, um, and I think from what I gather, there's probably like a, a nuance or difference between call out culture and cancel culture. I'm not sure if I fully like have clarity on, on that right now, but you know, I know that there's uh, also a difference between it kind of ties back to the to the decompartmentalizing thing that I was speaking to earlier. We can, you know, push people out of our communities or push people away out and over there for someone else to deal with. And I don't necessarily think that that is um, the best approach. Um, it is an approach sometimes to help, you know, reduce harm for some and maybe not necessarily the work of folks closest to the harm or the wounds. Uh, that may have been afflicted by whatever to, you know, be in relationship with that individual. But it's in some way, like community needs to not externalize, you know, or, or I don't know, I, like, I, it's difficult to speak about it, I think, in the abstract, because I'm not totally sure the, the, the context that you have in mind. But I would say that there's probably, yeah, I think I'm hearing there's there are some, uh, you know, people feeling like they're being silenced or something like that. 
at least there's a narrative that that is happening and part of what's happening. Whether or not it's true, it's very hard to parse. You know what I mean? Because it's like, it's all part of the swirl of our crazy social media lives. Gregory, I will say one thing that I have observed, though, is like, there's also, I mean, sometimes, like, I have observed where sometimes there's just like, a, and I don't know how this will land, but like, sometimes there's a white fragility dynamic where where there's like pointing out if, if if someone say is like having some kind of saying something that is perceived by some as harmful in their speech and then you know folks bring it to their attention and in bringing it to their attention and saying like you know you need to not be saying x y and z um you know this is why it's harmful or something to that effect and then that person feeling like, oh, I'm being, you know, silenced and I need to be PC rather than understanding or like uh, thinking rather than listening, like rather than listening and, and thinking. Uh, trying to figure out how to best articulate this, but yeah I, I think it's i think it's really i mean i'm hearing you and i think that there, <laughs> I, I mean i resemble that remark i mean i think there there is a cultural propensity especially amongst you know like white dudes to sort of like you know it's a thing like mansplaining and white fragility and like the impulse to sort of like modulate or mitigate to get it just right it's a thing my my boy is just coming in right now and i'm just noticing we're just about to come up to the hour here yep yep I, I, can, just a moment sure yeah Father, fatherhood life uh, i haven't seen go, this in a long time hey buddy <laughs> um yeah so that's a thing that is a totally a thing and oftentimes i've been doing my best to err on the side of just sort of like shut up and listen, you know, watch yourself going through this. And, and over the long term, maybe there are these patterns of, that, that could be troublesome or problematic and actually get in our way, like us as a, as a group of people working to make a better society. Maybe this is something, but just like hold on to it and observe it and wait to bring it up later. So, you know, I, I resonate with that. And I think that that, that is an important, yeah, that you're calling out something that's real and is an important kind of consideration. So, yeah, and, and it, it again, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying wait to bring it up later. I think it's context dependent. You know, engaging in that moment might be the right thing to do. Hi, buddy. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, yeah. Like, I think just I think balancing that with like an awareness that a lot of times what that process is surfacing is some is is some type of blind spot and just kind of there's a, a term that I use uh called nexus blindness which is like another way of saying a blind spot but it's it's surfacing that we're actually blind to seeing the connection between between two or more things and uh and if, if we have a blind spot and we don't know we have a blind spot <laughs> that's called a, having a blind spot so um i think that, that i just wanted to point that out as maybe yeah like, well and i think that actually like we just uh, i i i know we're at time well, anyway, i want to i want to wrap but i want to like hold that observation 
Come here, love bug. I want to hold that. You're going to run down to mama? Okay. Um, I want to call th th that I actually think we, we, in a way, we like reached that yeah. uh, meaning making resolution there, which is that what I've been struggling with is, Baby girl, is this like nexus of blind spot, of, of a blind spot, and that it's also what, what I'm wanting to do is struggle with it in such a way as to make it clear to myself and others that it exists. And my guess is amongst like my generation of like white allies, there is an important piece here around how this like pillar of our upbringing and values is strong by the present moment and creates sort of like an emotional reactivity. And so anyway, I think that's a good place to sort of land on it. That, that's what's yeah. happening. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think tracking your experience with it, you know, so that you can relay that to folks who are, who share in your, who, you know, can resonate with your journey. So anyway, this has been delightful. It's been delightful. <laughs> Thank you so much for hopping on, Andrew. And um, I'll, I'll pass along the link as it comes available. And uh, yeah, blessings to you and, and yours. And uh, yeah, take care and we'll be in touch. So great to see your beautiful children. Look forward <laughs> to the next time, Gregory. Bye. Bye. Bye.